amen to that song. Let's pray. Father, that's our cry. That's who we believe that you are. You are the one God, the creator of all things, without beginning or end, who is worthy to be set apart as that you're as holy on this earth, that your name would be your attributes, your your grace, your justice would be proclaimed and declared to the ends of the earth. And as your people, we exalt in your faithfulness to us that every day, every day you will meet our needs, not just physical needs as we come to the Lord's Prayer, but spiritual needs as well. And Father, we, we know that that's true. Help us in light of that not to worry and to be afraid, but to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, knowing that you are a faithful God. All these things will be added to us as well. And we are pretty amazed that we get the gift of your word and the opportunity today to open it up and to get our hearts and minds reset upon the truth. Help us to that end, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. The Westminster Shorter Catechism asks a very fundamental question. The question is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Notice the order of that. The glory of God... First, and the good of man that follows, and for Christians, the good of man that follows forever. That's the order of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God first, His glory, and then our good. That's the order of our salvation. That is the order, and we're going to see in our passage, that is the order of our prayers. The glory of God first and the good of man that follows after that. And I'll just plead with everybody in this room here today. If you seek your own good first and put God on the shelf, you may have fun for a few years, but then it's over. We've got to find our focus upon the glory of God. And I will tell you by experience and according to the authority of God's Word, that will always produce the most good for us personally, our marriages, our families, our church, and our world. So I want you to take up your Bibles and turn back to the book of Luke, where we're looking at the disciples' prayer in Luke chapter 11. And I want you to see that as we look at these prayer requests, that's the order we see that of this in the disciples' prayer. God's glory first and our good that will surely, surely follow. Luke chapter 11. We're going to start reading. I'm just going to read verses 1 through 4. Remember that Jesus, after He was asked by the disciples who are desperate, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. He doesn't tell them how. He doesn't tell them why. 
He tells them what. What to pray for. And there are five prayer requests in this passage. And notice as we get, to, as I read them, you'll see the order of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. God's glory and then man's good. Verse 1. It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, and here the prayer kind of begins, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. So that's Luke's version, probably better called the disciples' prayer. Jesus teaches it. And there's five petitions. The first two are for the glory of God. And then very quickly, it connects then to our good, right? Um, our provision, our pardon, our protection. We'll turn and do a sermon on each in the weeks to come. But we started last week with the first prayer request, and that was this, hallowed be your name. You can unpack that whole sermon. Just go back and listen to it. It's super important because it's tightly connected to today's prayer request. That's why I wanted them doing in one sermon and decided I can't do it. But they're tightly, because they're tightly connected together. And I hope to see that today. Hallowed be your name. Your, the name of someone, the name of God is really saying that God Himself would be hallowed. That God Himself, His person, His essence, who He is, what He has done, and, and the reputation of that glory would shine forth. That's the name of God. And He wants that to be hallowed, which we don't know what it means today. And we said that that's the word for holy. And it's not asking God to be sinless. He already is. We don't pray for that. The better idea of holiness is to be set apart. That God would be set apart in this world. That He would be reverenced. That He would be honored. That He would be worshipped by the nations of this earth. By the professing church upon this earth. By the families of this earth. And of course, all those are made up of the individuals of this earth. But we didn't get what that means because who knows what hallowed means except for Halloween coming up. That's our only connection to that word. So the best way to understand what that means from last week is to understand the opposite of it. What does it mean when you, when you don't set apart the name of God? It means you drag His name through the mud. You pollute it, or if you like the Old Testament, you profane the name of God. And we saw even the professing people of God can do that. So this is a call not just for them and the nations, the pagan nations, but for the church that we would see that in our testimony and in our words and in our unbelief and our complaining and grumbling against our circumstances, 
we sometimes do not set apart the name of God as holy. And so we recognize our own weakness, and certainly the pagan nations can do nothing but spurn the name of God. And so there is built into the first prayer request a need for God to answer it. Oh, it's a prayer request. And it's in the passive tense. Did you know that? That first word, be hallowed. It's like God's got to do it. It's a divine passive. God's got to answer this prayer. And so He does. He does this as we learned last week by reviving our hearts. He's got to open up our hearts to see our need. To give us a broken and contrite spirit. That we would see our sin and would see the glory of Christ and we'd bend the need to Him. And so this is a missionary request. Really it is that we'd send forth missionaries to proclaim this name. And it's a request for for us in this church that we would stop being two-faced and hypocritical in our walk with Christ. And we'd set apart His name as holy in our life. And ultimately, it's true, this is about worship. We're asking that the world and the church would worship, ascribe right worth to our God. Father, Father, this is how Jesus taught us to pray. Father, hallowed be your name. That was the first prayer request. And the reason I wanted to do the second prayer request is that it's closely connected, which we will see. So the first prayer request is that God's name would be set apart, respected and honored on this earth, in history, among the nations and the professing church. How is that going to happen? Second prayer request. (laughs) Your kingdom come. The first prayer request is that God's name would be set apart. The second prayer request then is that God's kingdom would be set up. Okay? That's what we're going to look at today. That God's kingdom would be set up. Now, let me ask you a question, kids. Listen to this. Your kingdom come is not an act of worship or declaration. No. It is a prayer request. Now, how much percent chance, kids, is God going to win in history and set up His kingdom? 100%. And yet we what? And yet we pray. And yet we pray. We pray the promises. I dare say we pray the prophetic promises of Scripture. So to unpack this, which (laughs) is going to need some unpacking, we're going to ask four questions of this first prayer request that you'll see in your outline. Number one, because there's much confusion on the doctrine of the kingdom today and I, I'm quite certain I won't sort it all out in one, one sermon, but here we go. Question number one. What is the kingdom? What is the kingdom? So, it's a prayer request. We're asking God to fulfill it. So, the implications are is that it's not fulfilled yet. We're praying for it. It's promised. It's a prophesied promise. Now, I want to be clear. This is not 
talking and praying about God's untouchable universal rule that is without question and without um, change in that forever. There is the universal sovereign reign of God. There is a manifestation of the universal kingdom in that way. Amen? We're not praying for His sinlessness. And in the same way, I'm not praying that God would you know, stop biting His nails and get on the throne of the universe. Do you see? Okay. What is the kingdom is a fair question then. So I'd like to say it this way. This is the eschatological kingdom. If you don't know what that means, it means end times kingdom. And if you don't know what that means, it just means this. It's the messianic kingdom of the Christ that he prays for. The messianic kingdom. This is the prophesied promised kingdom where Jesus Christ is king. This is the language of future. This is the language of the age to come. This is the messianic kingdom. And the messianic kingdom is both spiritual and physical. The messianic kingdom, the Jews in Jesus' day, right, were fixated on the physical at the exclusion of the spiritual to the point where Jesus was scratching his head and saying to Nicodemus about a spiritual entrance to the kingdom. It's like, how in the world could you be the teacher of Israel and not understand this? That it's not just physical, it's physical and spiritual. But then the rest of us scholars have taken that to mean that somehow on the other side of the coin, we can't handle it that it's purely physical, that it's got to be all spiritual this kingdom fixated on the spiritual and so they've sort of written off in some sort of for you scholars platonic dualism kind of written off the tangible physical aspects of the kingdom in the new creation model which writes off at least 25% of the scriptures Christ will reign upon this earth and win in this history so the first question is still important is it not what is the kingdom? This is, the, this is a, a prayer for the spiritual and physical ruling of the Messiah upon this earth winning in history. Question number one. Number two. Quickly move on because they're connected. Where is the kingdom? Okay, the first was what is the kingdom? Kids, see if you can fill it out. Not promising ice cream for this outline. It's too easy. Your moms and dads are going to go broke. We do that every week. Number two, where is the kingdom? Where is the kingdom? Well, listen, in Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer, okay, your kingdom come, and then we have it memorized, right? Your will be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. So, I think we are in good ground saying that the kingdom coming is the kingdom that will be set up upon this earth, that the king, the Messiah king, King Jesus, will reign on the earth. And it has not yet come, as Jesus prays in this prayer. It is still future. 
when God's kingdom comes in its fullness perfectly on this earth in history, then I dare say that God's name will be set apart from shore to shore upon this earth. It will be. And see, you see how I want to do the second prayer request. They're so connected together. The glory of God and the plan and the prophetic promises of God. Got to be first in our prayer life. Got to be first in our priorities. In preeminence. If we're going to have any, if we're going to make any sense out of the last three prayer requests. Revelation 5 verse 9. Where is the kingdom? Revelation 5 verse 9 says, And they sing a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and break the seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. It says it. Now, I would argue, and, and we may all be on the same page on this, and that's okay, you know. Where this is something, this, this, you know, raise your hand if you got your eschatology, your end times theology figured out perfectly. Raise your hand. Good, because I'm not raising it either. All right, so let's all relax. But this happens to be important. It's the glory of God at stake. It's a prayer request. Now there is a sense I ha- you have made them you have you have made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God, and that that's sort of a kind of almost a perfect past tense position of kingdom and priest to our God, and they will and it's future tense in the Greek and they will reign upon the earth. So I think and I and I, I think I'm on good ground here and. We can tease out this later, but I think I'm on good ground to say there's a sense in which the kingdom has already come in Christ. And there's a, there's a sense, certainly, that the kingdom, the messianic kingdom, is yet future, and they will reign upon the earth. There's an already and not yet to the kingdom. But for the second question, I just want you to see that at the end of the day, I, I think the text is clear that they will reign upon the earth. I think that the wear of the kingdom is upon the earth. So we are praying in the messianic kingdom, we are praying that God will win in history through his messianic king Jesus and that his name would be hallowed from shore to shore. Third, and obviously connected, it's going to lead us to the third question, when is the kingdom? So much debate upon this today. Almost every current end times view that would still pray for a future manifestation of the kingdom. So whatever your view is, we can all apply this prayer, so relax. But I believe that the Scripture is clear that the Messianic age to come 
has burst forth on the scene in the death, resurrection, ascension, seating, and procession of the Spirit upon the earth. The end has broken end. The age to come is here in Christ. It's arrived. It's clear in the Scriptures. I, I don't know how you can work your way out of this one. Let me give you just one. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11. Now these things happen to them, Old Testament, as an example, which is encouraging for the Old Testament, as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Did you hear that? Upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So, I would say it this way, the when is now and not yet, And I would say now, the spiritual aspects of the promised messianic kingdom have broken into the people of God, both Jew and Gentile, in the church. You say, what's your argument? What's your position? Well, when we were grafted in by faith, we read about it in Romans 11, when we are grafted in, when we are are placed within, into the precious, blessed promises of Abraham, the rich root of blessing, the gospel promises of Abraham, we were stuck in there. Romans chapter 11. We were grafted in, because that's the good vine metaphor. We share spiritually then in the blessings, in that rich root of blessing. And that includes the initial blessings of the new covenant, the spiritual blessings of the new covenant, clearly. So if we're going to say we share in the spiritual blessings of the new covenant now, then what's the big problem for saying that we share in the spiritual aspect of the kingdom now? We, you say, what are you? Are you this? Are you that? Are you this? Or are you the other thing? And you know what? More and more I'm becoming a Romans 11 guy. That's what I'm becoming. Now, so we were the kingdom of darkness and spiritually we have passed from the, into the kingdom of the beloved son according to the book of Colossians and Colossians 1 chapter 13 from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. And I think that really the answer to this is looking at Romans chapter 11. Let's just look at it again. That's why I had you read it. I think this is a key passage. And and I'll just, we're not going to have this figured out today, but let's start in verse 11. It's my contention here that when the word Israel is used, it's national Israel. And it's a tough sell any other way to take this passage. You've got to do some serious exegetical gymnastics to get out from the under of the thumb of national Israel in Romans chapter 11. You do. Okay. Verse 11. I say then, Paul writes, they, now we're talking about Israel, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, like when they said, crucify him. That was not good. (laughs) By their transgression, guess what? Good for us. Salvation has come to the 
Gentiles to make in order wait to make them jealous. So salvation comes to us in order to make Israel jealous. Verse 12. Now if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, salvific riches, it's all salvation in this passage. How much more will their fulfillment be? When they get grafted back in again at the end, I, I, I don't have words for it. Oh, I have one word. Life from the dead. But that's as good as I got. Verse 13, But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move, here it is again, to jealousy my fellow countrymen, the Jews, and save some of them. For if their rejection is reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also, and if the root is holy, then the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, that is the Gentiles, who is writing to in Rome, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them, and became, look at, the, look at this language of sharing. Don't forget that language. And verse 17, became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. So he says to the Gentiles, don't be arrogant. I'm not going to say anything, but I'll say this. Don't be arrogant toward the branches. If you are arrogant, remember it is not you who supports the root. It's Abraham it's the root that supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right, they were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Don't be conceited. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He will not spare you either. Behold, the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you God's kindness. If you continue in His kindness, otherwise you will also be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue, if they do not continue in their unbelief. So if Israel stops being, you know, this jealousy thing works and they get, they move towards faith, they will be grafted in, for God is quite able, God is able to graft them in again. For if you, will cut, if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted in contrary to nature, like Gentile and the Jew, uh, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, those, these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? For I don't want you to be, inf- brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. It's a mystery. So that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of Gentiles has come in. And so, all... Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the Deliverer will come. Clearly a reference to the second coming of Christ. The Deliverer will come from Zion and remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And when we read in Ezekiel last week, God puts the stake of His holy name on the fulfillment of this promise. For from the state, you know, let, let me explain this to you. Paul says, 
from the standpoint of the gospel, they, the Jews, are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. At the time the, New, the, the book of Romans was written, at least. <laughs> for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. I like how Andrew says that better. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have become disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. They get jealous and, and God shows them mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that He may show mercy to all. And then He breaks out into what? Prayer of praise. Now, after this groundbreaking plan of God that triggers praise, turn to Romans chapter 15 in the little known verse I think is very important. Romans 15 verse 25. Paul is writing to the Romans. They're Gentile Christians who have been grafted in. Uh, Paul writes, but now I am going to Jerusalem... Right? So in Jerusalem, there's, there's Jews there, the saints. For, uh, so verse 25 of Romans 15, But now I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints. Okay, so these are Jews in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so. And they are indebted to them, frankly. <laughs> Look at this. For if the Gentiles have shared. That's our partaking word. That's our grafted in word. If the Gentiles have shared in their what? Come on, come on. Spiritual things. There it is. They are indebted to minister to them also the material things. It's a little verse that Paul writes in connecting back to Romans chapter 11. So I think it's fair to say that it, there's a mystery form of the kingdom now that the glory of the end has broken already spiritually, spiritually, spiritually in the new covenant and the kingdom. In the church. And I believe after 2,000 years, though, after the first coming of Christ, that I can still pray this prayer in the future tense. However, because I believe the kingdom is broken in spiritually, but the king, and yet the full and final, uh, glorious, sin crushing justice, judgment and justice of God and glory, life from the dead, glory crushing kingdom of God is yet to begin and is connected with the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You, you tracking with me? There are biblical prophecies that were fulfilled at the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. There are biblical prophecies of the Old Testament and the New Testament, Romans 11, that are fulfilled at the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The first ones are literal grammatical historical promises. Let's make the second set literal grammatical historical promises. Why not? It's a consistent hermeneutic. Some have said, like Goldsworthy quotes, I want to assert categorically that all 
prophecy was fulfilled in the gospel event at the first coming of Jesus Christ, end quotes. I disagree. I don't think this is true. I think there are fulfillments at both the first and second comings. Eschatological hotbeds of activity in the kingdom. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 3 and look at verses 18 through 21. Peter is preaching his second sermon. His first sermon was pretty good. 3,000 got saved. Second sermon, we'll get to that in our CE hour next week. If you haven't come to a CE hour, we're really enjoying a series of Great Commission and then on to the book of Acts. So Peter's preaching the second sermon in the book of Acts, and he says in verse 17, take a look at it. It's a very interesting passage. I don't have it all figured out, but let me just offer a couple of thoughts. Verse 17, Now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance. So it's kind of the end of his sermon, talking to the Jews. I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. Yeah, the Pharisees. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that that his Christ would suffer, he is thus what? Fulfilled. you with me? Therefore... Here's a response. Repent and turn, which we saw in the CE hour. Repent and turn so that your sins may be wiped away. But look at this. Keep reading. Keep reading. In order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Oh, that sounds really spiritual, but keep reading. And that He may send Jesus. Look at this. The Christ appointed for you the Jews, whom heaven must receive until the period of the restoration of all things about which God spoke to the mouth of His holy prophets from ancient time. Heaven's received Him in His ascension, but He's coming back. And when He comes back, there will be the restoration of all things also spoken of by the holy prophets. So, we see the emphasis of the first coming, the death and resurrection of Christ, has thus been fulfilled. And I dare say Bethlehem is quite literal. And, the, and everything else about the first prophecies were literal. In its interpretive framework. But when you look at verses 20 and 21, this is emphasized a future fulfillment, the second coming, the restoration of all things associated with Jesus' return. And he's ascended, is now at the right hand of the Father, seated there. But then, that he may send Jesus the Christ, appointed for you whom heaven must receive until the period of the restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets from ancient times. A future coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and the restoration of all things. The restoration of the kingdom of God in its fullness. Where? 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 Upon the earth. And he'll win in history. And we saw this, and I don't have... We saw this in the transfiguration. Just work with me quickly. Just turn back to Luke now. Luke chapter 9 is just a couple chapters before 11, of course. Luke chapter 9, verse 28. This is fascinating. Um, (laughs) This explains the prayer in chapter 11, I'll tell you that. Luke chapter 9, 
Um, we know the transfiguration happens, but a couple of verses before the transfiguration, something in- interesting is said in verse 26 of Luke chapter 9. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man, Daniel 7, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Clearly a reference to the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then we come to what? The transfiguration. And in the transfiguration, He shines bright like white, right? And we get a foretaste of the glory of the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And frankly, for Jesus, who's about to go to the cross, it's very encouraging for Him. You know why? Because what's the next verse in Luke 9.37? Luke 9.37 On the next day, that is after the transfiguration on the mountain, he talks to Moses, he talks to Elijah. You can do this. Go, Jesus. Verse 37, on the next day when they came down from the mountain, the wheels came off. The wheels came off. This is our life, right here. Not on the mountain, right here. There's a sense already we're on the mountain, but there's a sense and there's not yet. On the next day when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met Him. And I wish we'd understand the already and the not yet. I think many of our doubts would flee away. A large crowd met Him and a man from the crowd shouted, Teacher, I beg you, look at my son. He's my only boy. A spirit seizes him and he suddenly screams and it throws him into convulsion with foaming at the mouth and only with difficulty does it leave him. It mauls him as it leaves. So poor Jesus, He comes down from the glory. He hears the voice of Christ, or the voice of the Father. He sees Moses and Elijah hovering there, encouraging Him to go and secure the exodus accomplished in Jerusalem. There's a sneak peek of the winning of the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, then He goes into the grime of our lives. And a little boy is mauled by a demon that would make the poltergeist Sequel look like a piece of cake. He's mauled by him and his only son and his dad has no hope as he's thrown about. And his disciples bless their hearts. They're all full of themselves. Who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to be greatest? One chapter earlier, right? All full of themselves. And now they're humbled to the dirt. They don't have the faith to deal with it. So they got the unbelief of the disciples. You got the demon possession of the boy. You got the desperation of the father. And Jesus, is, in respect to his humanity, says in verse 41 And Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? And now we understand why. Bring your son here. And while he was still approaching, the demon slammed him to the ground, threw him into convulsions, but Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit. He healed the boy. He gave him back to his father. And they're all amazed at the greatness of God. But while everyone was partying and marveling, he said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. There is nothing that is going to secure the exodus and is going to secure the coming kingdom. There's nothing else except for me going through with it because of the mess and the sinful muck of humankind. And so Jesus prays, Oh, Father, 
hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come. Can you feel it? And so we pray. As we're in the mountain to the valley of death, we live right there with the curious crowd who could care less about Jesus. A dad who is helpless, a boy who is possessed and brutalized, the disciples are filled with unbelief, and Jesus says, how long? And that's why we pray for the kingdom, our fourth point. That's why we pray. We pray, it's a prayer request, we pray for the kingdom because we are fed up. There's a sense in which the muck and the grime of it all, right? Lord, work. Break in. And so we can pray that that the gospel would go to the nations now in the church spiritually. And we can pray that spiritually we'd stop dragging the name of the Lord through the mud and and that Christ would be set apart as holy upon our hearts right now already. Amen. Pray it. It's still future for me apparently. The full of it. Come on. But we also see that we also connect this, right, prayer request, to the hallowing of God's name in history. And we know that God will not be mocked. We know that He will, that He is going to fulfill it all according to His word. And these two requests are to be taken together. That God's name will stop being profaned among the nations and upon the, among the prostate, the, not the prostate, that's bad, the apostate church. That's not going to happen until He comes and He comes like a stone and He crushes the beasts of the nations according to the, my reading and I think a good reading of Daniel, Daniel's prophecy. Until He comes and does that. And so we pray because, we're, because His name will be hallowed in history and number two, because it's our great hope. The second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ is connected to the coming of the fullness of the kingdom. Spiritually, it's broken in, but not yet. It's all over the New Testament. Philippians chapter 3, verse 24. Just write this down. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has to even subject all things to Himself. Or, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Oh, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are right now. For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. When will He appear? In His second coming. Or, consider Peter's perspective in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, he says, 1 Peter 1.13, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ? The second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we long for and we pray for 
Yes, a Christ-likeness of the kingdom's citizens now, but we long for the completion of the kingdom of Christ winning upon this earth when He comes back and the restoration of all things upon this earth and we will reign with Him upon this earth. And this is our hope. And I'm telling you, it's optimistic. It's optimistic. You know, rightly stated, any reader of the Bible who's a regenerate Christian ought to have an optimistic eschatology. I don't care what your label is. You're really out of balance if you don't. But that's another sermon. Nobody's got the corner on optimism. And I'm telling you, whatever your view, this whole teaching ought not to trigger our prophetic meanderings into oblivion or cause sectarian divisions, but these teachings ought to trigger our prayer life. It ought to produce hope. And that hope leads to something, which is the final why, the final reason for the request. It ought to lead to something. It's our hope, and that leads second, because it, that is the kingdom, is the source of holiness. It's the source of holiness. You guys, listen, I forgot to keep reading in John chapter 1, verse 3. I forgot to keep reading. 1 John chapter 3. Look again at verse 3. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies Himself just as He is pure. This hope leads to holiness. Oh, I forgot to read the rest of chapter 1 in 1 Peter after verse 13. Verse 13, right? Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But it's the fount- that's our hope. Fix our hope there. But then the rest of chapter 1 is a fountainhead of holiness. Command after command. Verse 14, don't be conformed to your former lust. Verse 15, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. Verse 17, conduct yourselves in fear. Verse 22, fervently love one another from the heart. All of these flow out of the hope to be revealed at the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This hope is connected to our holiness. And if your eschatology, your view of the kingdom, and your lack of prayer life and focusing your priorities around that view of the kingdom does not lead to hope, does not lead to holiness, we need to meet and rethink our end times theology. And so, we pray. Will Christ fulfill the first two prayer requests? Will God fulfill these? Yes or no? 100%. And so we pray. Very optimistic because it's the promises of God. (laughs) Again, very, very optimistic that God will fulfill His promises. Very, very clear that He will. Every one of these prayer requests are a promise. We'll get to it next week. It's more practical next week. This one's a little over the top. I get it. Hang in there. You know, I've been thinking about World War II lately, especially the atomic bomb, right? Come on. You know, a few you know, movies out and things like that. So we think about it. I think about, I think about that. And I think about, then I think about uh, those men on those Higgins boats uh, in France. D-Day and the going to the shores with the high ground 
and just shaking. And they boat dropped, mowed down from the high ground, spilling their blood for something bigger for themselves. A kingdom. They're committed for their country. They're willing to die for their country. And what I'm seeing here in these first two requests for God's glory is a radical realization that we are citizens of two kingdoms in that sense. But our greatest citizenship belongs to our heavenly citizenship. And as soon as we get our priorities and our minds and our hearts um, around that big picture of why we're here and the big plan and prophetic purposes and promises of God in this world. And we start to rearrange our priorities by the preeminence of the God of the universe. It changes everything about our prayer life. It orders all of our wants and our needs that would follow. It does. The glory of God orders them like this. And so, when we begin to see it and meditate on it, it leads to prayer. If you're not convinced, how does Paul in Romans 11, when he considers the big plan of God, he can't believe it. How could God do this? And he says, oh, the depths of the riches. This is a prayer. Of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and become His counselor? Or who has first given to Him that it might be paid back to Him again? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Ah, now when I get to give this day our daily bread, I think I'll have, you know, a little more perspective <laughs> into that next prayer request. This is an antidote, brothers and sisters, just as a big antidote to introspection. Excessive introspection. There's a place for it. This is an antidote for building our own kingdoms and pursuing other things. This is an antidote of putting our hope into what people think about us. This is our antidote in wallowing in guilt and shame over a sin that we've confessed and made right. This is an antidote of our priorities for our work choices and family choices. These first two prayer requests will kill pride right through the heart. They will completely stomp on your self-pity and self-absorption. Jesus said, you really want to know when they say, oh Lord, teach us to pray? When you pray, it didn't take them long. When you pray, <laughs> say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Which indeed is the last prayer of the Bible. The promise is, yes, I am coming quickly. And the prayer based on the promise is this. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for these first two prayer requests. Thank you how it has ordered my thinking and my life. I pray that we as a church would slow down and not get to the next request before we take some time this week to, maybe, to meditate and think deeply on these two prayer requests. And watch this, Lord, help us to repent. Help us to draw near to you. Not repent and perform in order to become your children, but Lord, we, we approach these prayer requests even in our failure as your children. We address you at the beginning of this prayer as Father. So help us to know who we are, forgiven and righteous in Christ, adopted into the family of God. And Lord, we just are like the disciples. Oh Lord, we don't know how to do it. Will you teach us like John the Baptist taught his disciples? Oh Lord, we say with those disciples, Lord, teach us to pray. And Father, I'm, I would be remiss right now if I do not pray for the peace of Jerusalem. I pray for many families that have been ripped apart. People, many people have died and are dying. And there's such conflict over there. We pray for all those families on both sides that are affected. We pray that your glory would be established. And Lord, if we read our Bibles rightly, we believe that Israel as a nation is connected to the second coming and the answer to this prayer request. So we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, may all of these teachings, many of them perhaps or, or perhaps um, lost, and forgive me for that, but I pray, Lord, that we as a church would take what we had heard and whether or not we can sort out the details of it, I can't either. But may we pray. May we just say, Lord, your big picture plan is what I need to order my life. May your preeminence order our prayers at Grace Community Bible Church. That, to the, to the, to the hope of glory, to holiness in Christ. May you accomplish that as well. We ask all of these things, and we're excited to sing and respond to it. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.